0: Welcome to the Knife Journal Podcast, episode number 100, The Milestone. name is James Noka. I'm here with a good friend, Dave McIntyre, who is going to be joining us now. And uh, we're going to be talking about knives and all kinds of good stuff. So welcome aboard, David. Thanks for inviting me out. So here we go, talking about knives. Dave uh, was the last season winner of Alone and uh, did a Fine job on the television set. Oh, thank you, thank you. Fooled us all, (laughs)
1: fooled us all. I kept it a secret for all about nine months.
0: Yep, yep. And uh, so it was, you know. Tell us what it was about. I mean, it's a lot of you know. It's surprising a lot of people haven't seen that, and they probably won't see it until it's a rerun. Until the next season comes out, it's, it's funny. There's there's
1: still people out there that are that are getting in touch with me, saying, "Oh, I just watched the last episode." Yeah, of yeah. It's like they hadn't even heard yeah you know, that I had won or, or whatever. So
0: yep, it's yeah. pretty cool. So so fill
1: us in on the whole well the show experience. Is, it's a for if you haven't seen the show, it's a wilderness survival show. They took ten of us and dropped us on Vancouver Island. Uh, totally separated. You film the entire thing yourself. Um, you have brief contact uh, once a week with the production crew they come out to swap our batteries and uh, Get our footage, but other than that short visit you're by yourself completely living off the land and uh, there was we filmed it in Van, on the north end of Vancouver Island and uh, Basically my area they dropped me off on a rocky sea coast. It was a like a cove uh, on Quatsino Sound
0: and that was home for 66 days now, did they did they uh th- was that all on one island or was that was that several different little islands that you guys were on? Or- well, Van- the
1: the north end of Vancouver Island, there's uh, Quatsino Sound and Hol- Holberg In- Inlet, and uh, they had pre-selected uh, locations for all ten of us, all scattered around the area. Yeah, so the the locations were scouted for. Similar resources and similar conditions. Obviously, they can't make them identical, but uh, everyone's area had pluses and minuses and uh, Supposedly they all had fresh water and access similar access to the oceans resources and and similar forest and things like that. Um, I Never got to see anyone else's zone other than when I watched the show So Mm -hmm. I I was kind of surprised at how different they were Mm -hmm. and the different resources that other people had um Mine had have definitely had its
0: pluses and minuses. Yeah, my, my wife and I were big fan to, to the whole, actually the first season too, and uh, we were surprised at how different the areas were. And when, when you start looking at, at what, you're like, whoa, what's that? It's like a completely different region. And I, you know, I, you I think, maybe it's because what, we're, what we might have been comfortable with, we were looking at some of the other sites going, Oh, I would not like that at all.
1: Well, that's the, that's the thing. A lot of you're a lot more astute than a lot of uh, online commentators because people would suggest things like, "Well, why wouldn't David do this or that?" Okay, and I, looking at like I had mature old growth, right. temperate rainforest, right. I and mean, I had trees that were like ten feet in diameter. Yeah, and they're saying, "Why doesn't he build a cabin?" Out of what? I don't have a sawmill. You know what I mean? There's just no way to do. I got that was the shockingest thing when I got on the beach and I pushed inland into my little forest there at how few poles there were. There, my, I went out there with this conception, I was going to build myself a, like a traditional boreal forest type lean-to, mm-hmm. with a, I wanted a bush bed. I know, I absolutely planned on spending half my time out there flat on my back in bed. You know, from sundown to sunup, I was going to just conserve energy. I never planned to heat my shelter, and I got out there thinking I'm going to build a, a bush bed with a lean-to, and then use my tarp as kind of like a waterproof shell over the entire thing, and extend it out into like an alcove area in the front, where I'd have my fire and wood, wood, pile and splitting log and all that stuff. And I had to scrap that idea within 20 minutes of arriving. My, my you know, the, this uh, lean-to cabin type thing, there, just, there wasn't the building material available to do it. So I had to, I had enough poles to throw up an A-frame with my tarp and build
0: that bush bed. Now there was, there was one of the fellas, and I'm, I'm hor- forgive me, I'm horrible with names. The one fella that was uh, always talking about his wife Mike. Mike. I thought from the very beginning when he started doing stuff, I thought, wow, this guy's gonna be here forever. He just built himself a home. And, uh, And I've told a lot of people that, you know, everybody that's on that show is extremely talented. They could survive pretty much anywhere. I mean, they'd be the kind of people you want to be with. If you were lost somewhere, you'd want to be with one of these guys because you're gonna you're gonna make well, it because you're gonna find shelter and water and everyone the on the cast. Everyone on the cast had uh, their their
1: primary skill sets, and then you know enough uh, wilderness skill to be there. Enough right. everyone everyone had, was on that show because they were the right person for the right, show. Right, You know, they,
0: and and it uh, uh, what what cracked me up was he had, I mean he had the best setup that Mike is could, super energetic uh, and he has. All these ideas—he's just full of ideas. Yeah, and, 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 it, and you can tell it kept him busy, and sure. it, and uh, and he had a nice—he he had a beautiful place to stay. He, he had a beautiful place to stay, and I thought, well, yeah, there's no question about. it. And then it, then it started. You could see the the mental strain of not having his wife with him. What what that went into, uh, how much that played on him. And then you're like, hey, you know what? That's where it was all. That was where the game was won or lost. Yeah.
1: Like I've said in other places you have your reasons for going to a thing like this but then you have to find all your reasons for staying yeah yep. you know for me it was like getting a, a, an advanced degree in wilderness survival these are the reasons for me to go you know it's like I got offered uh, they asked me to apply for the show I didn't seek it out they sent me a message and asked me to send in an application and I thought you know what why not if not now then when right you know if not me then who you know right. I, I can could, I could do this I, I saw it and I thought you know I can do this and then it was like getting a, an advanced degree in wilderness survival. I've got someone who's going to pay me now to go out and do all those things and, and to be able to do legally things that normally are not. Like here in Michigan, I couldn't gill net right. and we could up there and different things to be able to try different techniques and I just couldn't pass up the opportunity. But then as you're out there, you, you kind of make this mental calculation of can I continue to do this? Can I actually win this thing and stay here long enough to win it? And that kind of weighs on you that you're, you're going by how you feel how much uh, calories you're getting the the potential the landscape and all those things and you start making this mental calculation of you know, can I stay and I just for me it like it closed down to one day at a time that you can only tap out in the present you can only tap out right now and if right now was bearable if right now was okay I didn't have to tap out and you end up living the same day, over and over and over again, and you get pretty
0: good at it. Yeah, well, and what if you? It's like you hit a. It's like a. Um, you would hit a. Uh, uh, oh, how, how do I want to? I don't even know how I want to say it. You get into like a a, a routine. Or? A routine of you know that you go out a certain time. You know when the tides are. You play the tides. You fish accordingly. You eat. You eat accordingly, and then you just. Start over the next day, over and over and over. And if you don't have the strength to be able to do that for any length of time, you're gonna be in trouble. Well, that,
1: that, establishing that kind of a pattern is what takes time in itself. Right. Okay, you don't, I had never been to the Pacific Coast in my entire life. Right. Okay, one, when I was 19, I did a, a drive from Portland, Oregon to Seaside. It was a road trip. Right. You know, I wasn't there surviving, right. I was just sightseeing. And to, to be in that environment for the very first time in your life, and to have to pattern all that wildlife, and the tides, and the weather, and the wind, and the, and the waves, and all that stuff, and to be able to figure that out, that's what took me some time.
0: Yep. To be able to locate well, sources You sources. You knew ahead of time that this was going to happen, when you were going to go to this area, so you must have had some forwarding information like, you know, try to figure out the tides, try to figure out the...
1: Well, we didn't know we were going to Vancouver Island until boot camp okay you know it wasn't like they announced it when you're applying you're applying to go anywhere in the world right and put your skills up anywhere in the world against anyone in the world and I thought you know I'll throw my throw my hat in that ring you know why not and at boot camp they announced we're going back to to Vancouver Island so then after boot camp I had a a period of a few weeks there to to study up as much as I possibly could on the island and uh, of course watching season one helped a lot I would say I don't recall doing anything out there because I saw someone do it on season one, but it definitely informed my gear choices and my clothing choices. And I felt I was much better prepared to walk. I wasn't walking in blind.
0: I knew- Was what it the same say. time of year? Did you guys uh, we go were, out we there? We dropped the same? A,
1: little, a little earlier than they did. So we didn't get into the quite into the, the, snow. the winter weather. And it was a mild, the weather was a lot more mild
0: uh, yeah. in our season. Yeah. But that would still be enough to, I mean, to oh, see I the first season, yeah. you're going,
1: oh, this is crap. <laughs> Thirty-five degrees and raining is. is it's a like bad the day. worst. Is yeah, it's like the worst you could possibly get. And you can't get away from it. Right. There's no real inside. You know, you you never get to a point well, where unless you can you're just, Mike. Yeah, well, Mike you know, definitely, <laughs> definitely had a comfortable camp. You know, it's like 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 you raided an IKEA shipwreck or yeah. something.
0: <laughs> well, that's a, that's was kind of funny too because there was a lot of stuff that they you guys did get off the beach. Well, yeah, Beach Treasure was,
1: uh, uh, Shore Store was was wide open. Anything we found, we were allowed to use, and uh, that was always great finding stuff on the beaches. My my first day, I, I walked up onto my beach and I, I found uh, this dead rope. You know, it was uh, I forget what it was made out of. I don't I don't really know what it was. It looked like dental floss on the inside, but the outside was all like sun damaged and, and mm-hmm. brown and, mm-hmm. and rotted, and you could just pull that apart. But if you if you spread the rope out on the inside, it was all bone white. It was perfect condition, and that's the fiber I used for making all my lanyards. I used that for uh, weaving my gill net. And uh, that was, I, I went out there planning to make a second gill net because watching season one, I knew that gill nets were a producer. So I figured, okay, I know how to make gill nets, so I'm, I'm going to, if I can, make one. And I was thinking about having to hand spin all that, uh, all that cordage, and it takes 120 meters of cordage to make a two square meter net. So that's a lot of. <laughs> you know, nights sitting up making cordage and I had I found that on day one I walk up and the, all that cordage was right there all that fiber I didn't have to do it and modify it at all so it's like day one my first full day is when I made that uh, the net needle yeah you know I just I just wanted to hit that thing running and I made I found another rope there which I took apart and I uh, thigh rolled that into uh, 42 feet of of lighter rope which I could use for the top and bottom lines so I started on that project immediately as soon as I got there.
0: And that was a good move, although... I
1: don't regret doing it. Though, just you just know saying, what I mean? Oh, it didn't This is before, much. Yeah, this is before I realized that the cove itself was not gonna allow me to do anything right. with passive fishing. Right. You know, my, my plan was to get as much passive fishing infrastructure up as right. possible. Talking, you know, my, my production, my commercial made gillnet, uh, trot lines, set lines, bank lines, as much hooks in the water as I could. And check those when I could, and then spend the rest of my time actively fishing. That was always Plan A, you know, and, was to do a two-pronged approach. And that,
0: that was, way. and that is actually what the natives had done since the beginning of time there.
1: Well, they, yeah, but they're they're working. It's very unfair to compare what we were doing out there with what the native population had been doing since the dawn of time. Because they worked as a unit, they worked okay. in concert with each other, okay. and they didn't have to discover anything either. I mean, a child born into that that uh, those villages grew up learning where to go and what to do, and right. everything that was in season. They had this natural, innate knowledge. Their entire education was based upon what they could get out of that that ecosystem. For us to be, but it was off pretty blind, much,
0: but but it was pretty much in the water. It was not. Yes, they lived. They off did the not. Sea. They did not eat bugs. They did not eat grubs. Well, they did they, not. They, Native
1: peoples traditionally eat anything you know that they that any they'll exploit any food source in their in their ecosystem. But they definitely a maritime culture,
0: right? Living
1: off the land, off right. the sea,
0: right? But, which is a lot like and they the natives up here, in, yeah. In but in they Oregon. would also
1: modify the seacoast. They had uh, areas that were that they would uh, build fishing weirs and all kinds of rock, right. you know, all kinds of landscape modification in the intertidal zone. Which
0: which is interesting because they uh, uh, they did that was kind of what was up here. At, at the beginning of the when the white man first came to the northern Michigan area. That's what they encountered was a fishing fishing cultures um, native fishing cultures and uh, So it must have been similar. I would think.
1: Yeah, well, they had very uh, Very refined systems for doing what they were fishing for halibut. They were doing a lot of uh, You're going after the big big ticket items in their their culture in the in their ecosystem and they had um you know, clam beds and mussel beds and places that are developed. And they also had a system of trails to get to everything they needed to get to. Mm-hmm. Now, we're, we're dropped off, my forest didn't have any trails that, you know, I had to bust through a brush and it's a very difficult forest to move through. But if you're, if you're born into that culture, you're also born into the knowledge which teaches you how to live and it, it's just a matter of fitting in. Right. My experience with uh, native peoples in South America is they're extremely good in their home range. And if you take them, you know, just 30 miles away, they're not that good,
0: you know. They they they're just as lost as you would be. Right. Interesting. Interesting. So, you, if you haven't had a chance to see it, you got to get to. Uh, I, I would think you could see that on what was on History Discover your History History, History, Channel. History Channel. I would think that if you are a, if you have a, a an account like a, a Dish Network account or one of those, accounts, on you demand. can log. Yeah, you can log in and see that online
1: online you can watch it on the the app history channels app you can uh, i think it's still on demand you can go back and watch the entire season yeah it's
0: it's very well i mean if you haven't seen it you need to watch it both seasons are extremely good um but it uh, having a little bit of insight into into how that show actually worked has really been helpful too because you know, I can stand there and say to even naysayers that I've run into, said, "Oh, I'm watching that. It's all fake. It's yada." Oh enough. my goodness! No. And and I'll, I'll say, you know what? It's not. I, you know, uh, it, it may be. It's
1: very frustrating to me to see that the, the more work I spend, you know, I probably generated about four and a half hours of footage a day uh-huh. out there, and that is work. That is hard work. On top of the survival, you have to film. You don't just go fishing. You make a movie about going fishing. You now, you know, win, lose, or draw, you're still making that movie. Whether you're getting fed by doing it or not.
0: Well, you know, what kind of cracked me up was the fact that that uh, there was some footage that you obviously took that you thought should be shown and somebody else decided, no, we're not going to show that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you,
1: I'm, I'm, I'm,
0: yeah, you're shooting and,
1: every, all day, every day, and there's all kinds of scenes. You're pouring your heart into the filmmaking of it. You're setting up multiple camera angles and things. And and then to watch the show and think, oh, wow, they didn't use that. Like my entire shelter building. I had a great sequence, you know, several cameras running built building my shelter. And they chose not to concentrate really on anyone's shelter building. They didn't want to see you be Well, it would be kind of a boring show to watch <laughs> 10 people building shelters, the same kind of thing, you know. It, they, we all had a very similar experience out there. We all had to do the same tasks. Now, do you want to watch 10 people making their nightly fire? You know, right. I filmed it every night, but. Right. Yeah. Well, I tell you, choices.
0: I had, I, had my, I felt bad for the fellow that uh, lost his feral rod. Uh, the first, was it his first fire? I don't know if that was Randy's first fire or not, but
1: I, I, oh man, my heart went out to him too when I saw that. No, we didn't know. We get to, to, we get to watch this the series, we don't know what anyone did until we see it on the episodes ourselves, you know? So, oh, seeing that happen with him. And if anybody out there had the skills to pull off friction fire in that environment, it was Randy, and he is really, really good. And he did, you know, yep. he pulled it off. And I had no doubt when I, when I saw that he had burned up his ferro rod, I thought, man, I would not want to be in that position that and would suck beyond it sucking. It would suck beyond sucking. But he sucked it up and, and, and did the well, job. Well,
0: the first season that one fellow lost his feral rod. Right. And he quit. Like, I'm done. I am not even gonna attempt this. And I and I remember thinking to myself, I mean it was early in the in yeah. when he when he it tagged out first the first time yeah. in the first season he was it was early and I was like, Man, I can't believe that he didn't even try. I mean you didn't even he didn't even try. But he could have tried and failed and they just just didn't use that in the... I I, I
1: honestly don't know. That was uh, Joe. I I honestly don't know if if he had uh, done anything, but I would not want to lose my ferro rod out there. In fact, it was one of the first things I did was make a lanyard out of that white fiber and tie it off to my belt and I wore that thing 24-7. I always had it tied on. Uh, Later, I I replaced that with a... I found an orange rope and I made about a a four-foot Orange lanyard, so even if it was uh, off my, uh,
0: I, I never had to take it off my belt to be able to use it. Now, one of the one of the things that I wondered about was, you you were allowed to take ten items, and then they ch- made you choose what did you say, seven? Or There was a certain number of things that they made you take, that you no, had to take this? No, no, no,
1: they, they supplied certain uh, safety gear and things like that. Um, the, the list of, there was a list of, of about, I think, 40 items, and some of them you know were things that I don't think any self-respecting survival uh, knowledgeable person would, would take, you know, personal hygiene stuff like a comb or a brush and it really, it, there was, uh, if you look at our list, we all took very
0: similar items. So, well, yeah, and I was I was curious about that, but there was never like you could take like a roll of, like paracord or,
1: no, there was there was cordage. I uh, was I think that was on the list of forty items. I, they, I think they published the list from season one. It's out there, uh, some floating around the internet. But you, you could have taken I could have taken rope, but I figure okay on that, that beach I'll probably find rope, and I right. really I really am good at making rope mm-hmm. and cordage. So that's not I can make it out of anything. So that's not a, a priority for me. My priority in, in choosing my items was to pick things that I could not reproduce with my own natural skills or natural materials, uh, like a saw. I can't make a saw. Right. I can't make a, a, a two-quart pot, um, fish hooks and things like that. Yeah, there's, there's bushcraft solutions for these, but the real thing is much better.
0: You, you know, know what I, was, I was quite surprised at the, at the different pots. That I saw the different oh, pots yeah, and oh, pans. Oh yeah, yeah. They they got changed up. I I laughed when I saw. I was like, wow, that's
1: everybody <laughs> was like swapping pots and changing. We're all like walking into Port Hardy and people are buying different pots and thinking about it because it is. You are stuck with you dance with the one you brought, yeah. you know. And that's just how <laughs> it is. I had uh, I had that two quart pot with a lid and it wasn't perfect. It was a very expensive pot and Jean uh, gave it to me, uh-huh. a mutual friend of ours, and I. Uh, I didn't have it, didn't have like a wire bale that I could hang it from. And there were some things that I didn't like about the pot. It was a very good pot to you know, cook your dinner on your stove at home, but probably not the, the perfect choice for the wilderness. But it was a really nice pot, and I, I decided to take that one. But a lot of, a lot of the different people were up, up there, and they're, when, you, when you realize, okay, I'm going to be in the bush in a week and have to stay with this one piece of gear for whatever it is. There's a lot of second guessing, a lot, a lot of last minute oh, sure. choices that go sure. on. I mean, I, I know several contestants were still debating on which knife they were going to take because well, I don't carry, you know, I carry four knives right. usually in the bush. You know, I always, I always have the same four pretty much I carry and I had to narrow that down to one. And you really, it really does rack your brain to make those choices and decisions. Well, especially for a knife guy
0: that carries four knives. Yeah. I mean, know, outside, I've, I've got have my way of doing this. You know? I've got my way of doing things. And, um. But I did notice that most of you had axes. Most yes. of you carried an axe of some kind or I ha- I don't even think I saw a hatch, I think it was an axe.
1: Everyone pretty much, I think everyone had an axe. Yeah,
0: some and some um, and a knife and a saw. I mean, I, those were the, I mean, I and. I have no that, regrets taking those three tools. Right. I use them you all could, daily. Well, and, and that would be the thing, is you could take, there's so much you could do with those three things that, you know, it would be crazy not to bring those.
1: And if any, if any of them would have been lost or broken, it would have been a hardship, Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the saw, I used my saw on a daily, if not daily, I, I would have, if it was really like bad weather, I would just stay in my shelter and uh, saw wood. I had a huge pile of uh, firewood that I carried back to keep it dry. And I would just take those logs and on, on bad days, cold, rainy, sleety days, I just saw wood for a couple of hours and, and stock up my, my firewood. Um, other than that, I used my saw to cut down a lot of poles. All my poles, I did all my felling with, uh, I didn't bother felling with an axe because it takes too much energy, it's it's dangerous. Right. It, it was just much easier to do it all with the saw. And I use my axe every night for splitting. And I. Uh, yeah, and and you pretty the knife, much were burning pine? I was born burning cedar, mainly, almost cedar. exclusively cedar. Mm-hmm. Uh, red and, and yellow cedar. I had, a on, on, right on my beach, I had an onshore current that came in off of Quatsino Sound pushing debris and stuff towards my, my beaches so I, I ended up with a lot of logs and they were both a blessing and a curse you know the, the same logs that were providing me with firewood were also tearing my gill nets apart right. and uh, the waves came in across this huge kelp forest that was out off the the front of my cove and it would rip up any storm there'd just be these giant wads of bulk kelp you know washing up on the beach and it was I uh, it was good because what Go it was good because I got to eat that you know it was uh, bulk help was good eating once you figure out how to do it but all of my passive fishing systems were destroyed so I, as a, you know the same waves that were giving me bottles from for water and giving me rope and floats and all kinds of neat stuff on the beach were' also tearing out all my hooks and and, and destroying all my nets
0: right well and that's a, that's a uh, thing that uh, that's probably not something that the natives ever had to deal with. Because those were all man, man, you know, logging industry logs. Yeah, I imagine.
1: Well, yeah, I don't know. Because
0: it looked like they were sawed at both ends. But they
1: also, they also, that's the thing, the natives there also grew up gill netting, and they, they you know, they, they learned from from youngsters, you know, growing up where to set the nets and how right. to do it. For me, this is my first attempt at ever gill netting anything. You know, I'm just washed up on the, on the seacoast. It was like a. It was like the, the ship sank, you know, and you recovered what you had. You had a tarp, a sleeping bag, a few other things, you know, and just
0: had to figure it out from there. See, and I always thought that a that a, uh, a chunk of gillnet, it didn't even have to be a big chunk of gillnet to be effective. Like you could, like if for a, for somebody's survival pack, have a small section of gillnet would be a, I well, mean, the, they're light and they're small enough to- Well, the be, gillnet, even a large net's still light.
1: Yeah. They don't weigh anything. Uh, my, my, my but large bulk, gillnet- so.
0: Well, it's bulky, mean Actually not.
1: No? It's, it's monofilament line, so you can, yeah. You know, my, my large gill net, it, now the key is to, to fold it up and to roll it up properly so you don't have this tangled mess when you go to deploy it. The, the whole key with gill netting is, is deploying it in an area where it's not going to fill with debris, it's not going to get torn apart by waves, and there's also a high traffic of fish. Now, when I, when my tide would go out, I had a huge area of, of beach. It was basically akin to like a sandy desert. Mm-hmm. There wasn't any cover there. And all the fish, because I had this huge kelp forest out in front of me in, in deeper water, that's where all the fish would hang out. And you know even even at high tide, my, my beach area would be flooded, and that's where I could deploy my gill net and tie it off to the rocks and things. But the land underneath that was just basically a sandy gravel bottom, and there wasn't a whole lot of reason for fish to go there. I didn't even fish with a line in the area where I could deploy my gill net. Ah. There, there was never any visible fish in that area, and that you know, other than minnows and little tiny, you know, bait fish.
0: Yeah, you don't want to. We don't want to ruin it for anybody that hasn't seen any of the show yet. We want yeah. them to see the show <laughs> too. Um, so tell me, what you, you carried a, a, a the knife that you you brought the knife with you that yeah, you, it's uh,
1: uh, A.B. Elias of Diving Sparrow Knife Works made this for me. Um, it's uh, a a woodlore pattern uh, bushcraft knife. Um, ATS 34 stainless steel, and that was uh, that was by request. I don't normally use stainless steel knives, but I figured in a saltwater environment, and it really was the right uh, knife steel for the for the job. It was it was great. I'd be able to clean fish with it, and it'd be all covered with blood and scales and everything. I could just walk down to the water, you know, and, and rinse it off in the ocean, and put it right back in its sheath, and not have to worry about it.
0: And I can't help but notice that your leather sheath did not rot. No, it did not. But it's also <laughs> totally
1: saturated, and impregnated with beeswax. Yeah and it, it, is, uh, it is waterproof, it's hard as a rock.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You hear that? It's Now, did he do that with a pressure cooker? Must have done that with a pressure cooker. I think he hot dipped it. Yeah. I don't well, that was he, it. Yeah, I don't think he did it with a pressure
1: cooker. I have to confirm with him. Um, I've used leather in the jungle down in Brazil. I have, to, I have, I make my own sheaths for my knives and I always totally saturate them and impregnate them all the way through. Uh, someone, someone, a friend of mine called it cowdex, you know, because you, you, it's like a wet
0: form process. The knife snaps in and out and it's totally waterproof. Yeah, I have a, a diving sheet that's leather impre- or wax impregnated leather, but I think they did. I think that company did it with um, did it with a pressure cooker. I think yeah, that's I how never, they did. It. They I never got it that elaborate. And then they apply apply air to it right. so that it goes in completely. I used inside. to in
1: Brazil all my machete sheets and things I, I might make are vacuum, are
0: impregnated with wax, and all I would do
1: is. I'd heat the wax up in a double boiler, then I'd use a, a hairdryer on the leather and just get it nice and warm. Not so not so warm that you're gonna cook it and, and change the character of the leather, but mm-hmm. just get it warm so the wax keeps soaking in. And after it stops taking it.
0: Cause you'd want, well, I would think it would be easier if you just use a vacuum pump, put it in a, you know. Yes, you, but then you, I would have to
1: have a vacuum, pump. yes, you're thinking production. I'm thinking <laughs> I could never, I could
0: never make money on a sheath, ever.
1: And people say, "Oh, you may you should make a tutorial about making your sheaths." Yeah, I can make them as a one-off. I can do it as a project for a knife that I really like and want to have a, a impregnated <laughs> sheath. But to make money on it with my process,
0: absolutely yeah, you, not. You, and even and I don't even think with the, even applying a vacuum, I don't even think you could make money at it. I think it's a like you want to just help somebody out and do that right. because it's uh, it's it is quite difficult. But but Abe's knife worked flawlessly for me. Speaking it speaking fantastic. of Abe, Abe, cut himself. A while back, he did a few weeks he ago.
1: Is, he is recovering. You've got the update. Uh, yeah, he was working on a knife in his shop, and it got a got away from him and did some damage. Uh, it hurt two of his fingers, and from last I heard, there was no tendon or nerve damage, and he's healing up fine. He seemed to be in good spirits last time I talked to him, and uh, yeah, I'm very very uh, happy that it, it could have been a lot worse. Mm-hmm. He yep. said, "When the knife came off the machine, it was a, a buffer, and uh, when it came off, it actually sunk itself into the wall of his shop."
0: That is the worst. That is the tool that gets people yeah, killed. It's a, it's a nightmare. Uh, is a buffer. Um, a buffer with a lanyard will kill you. You have a lanyard on your knife, and you run a bu- running through a buffer. You're yep. That'll kill you.
1: Very, and you, very and bad. And you know better than to do it. And he knew better than to do it. And you know, we've all done that. You know, you 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 think. Oh, well, that thing's going to fall off of there, and then you don't act to do something about it, and then it falls off. Or you know, yep. it's just one of those things. You yep. get over overconfident.
0: Now, you you were you spent a lot of years in Brazil. What was what were you doing in Brazil? I was a missionary. Uh, I worked in the city of
1: Belo Horizonte, which is a city of, you've heard of Finland, right? Mm-hmm. Finland has five and a half million people. Mm-hmm. Okay, our city had five and a half million people. Oh, okay, big place. Um, very. Uh, I worked in a downtown in an urban church, I was a youth pastor there for seven years and that's what got me into leading people out into the bush, because I couldn't, I'm a country boy, you know, I couldn't handle living in, in this uh, urban jungle, so every chance I would get I'd take off and go to the woods, you know, go out in the, Minas Gerais. our state down there, has just amazing wilderness areas. Um, in the lowland it's jungle, then in the middle elevation it's uh, like scrub brush called Cerrado, and we lived in the transition zone between those two ecosystems. So if you went down in the lowland in rainy season, it was a rainforest. If you went up in the highlands during dry season, it was desert. So you could literally park your car at the same place and experience either rainforest or dry desert in the on, in the same area. Nice. And for you know for wilderness survival training, it was just fantastic. And then above that, we had six thousand foot mountains with an ecosystem all their own. So. They never, you know we're not talking tree line, snow-capped kind of thing, but it was definitely above 4,500 feet. You had a totally different vegetation.
0: So it was just a fantastic place to train. Awesome. Let's take a quick break. I'm going to fill my coffee cup up because I'm ADD and I need a sip. <laughs> we'll be right back. testing one two three okay <clears throat> all right we're back we had a little coffee break a little smoke break a little potty break the big boys don't say potty that's right <laughs> <laughs> anyways so um I know you're a big you're a big machete guy uh, being from that—that's all, all from South America, because yeah, not was, a, that's not. I that. own machetes
1: before I went down there, but I—I I, I cut my machete teeth in Brazil. Definitely. Yeah,
0: yeah. Are you now? Are you still? Are you still like that's the? It's my go-to blade, absolutely.
1: Um, you know, the, a, a machete won't keep up with an axe in if you have to process large volumes of firewood, like a boreal forest. You know, in summertime, yeah, machete even there would be a useful thing, but. If you have to produce a large volume of firewood, you need an axe and a saw. Uh, in, in tropical jungle, you you never really have to produce a large volume of firewood. Um, but then again, you can't. Uh, the machete is a mode of transportation. Mm-hmm. You can't move around. In fact, in, in the jungle, I've I've never seen anyone carrying an axe in the jungle unless they were there to
0: fell trees. All right. You know, well, yeah, because you got a lot of stuff that you can't. Cut yeah, with and an even axe. then, they're
1: they're moving they're moving with a machete. The, the machete is a mode of transportation. People forget that it's the only way you can move in jungles if you have a machete. Mhm. Mhm. And I, I figured when I, when I went to when I went to Brazil, I used to carry a K bar in Pennsylvania, you know, Marine Corps, right. uh, just K bar, and I used that for years and years as my my large blade. And when I moved to Brazil, I realized, okay, I can't function down here without a machete. So I would, I would always strap a machete to this side of my pack, and I carry the big knife. And I found myself using that machete more and more and more, and the big knife was just dead weight. So, you know, I have BK7s and different, you know, Knives in that that class, I just never really used them. And the machete took on all the all the big brutal knife tasks that you would use a large knife for. The so machete does very well. So
0: you would augment that with like a Swiss Army knife or a small folding knife. I carried four blades.
1: I uh, I have lots of knives, not as many as some. You know, it's not a not quite the <laughs> addiction, you know, of acquisition that some people have. But I I would carry. Uh, my standard in Brazil was to carry a. Scandi Edge bushcraft type knife, whether a Mora or you know more higher end knife. I had a uh, new say uh, NRGs neck knife, which mm-hmm. is set up as my PSK, my personal survival kit. I carried a uh, Victorinox Farmer
0: okay. and
1: mm-hmm. um, and my machete. And my machete is a custom design uh, that I, I make myself. And uh, it's got different edge uh, modifications done to it. Every, basically, every every centimeter of that blade is, does something for me, which I do on a regular basis.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it really is my go-to tool. But between those four knives, I did everything I need to do.
0: How, how how readily available are Mora's in South America? Oh, they're, it's funny, you
1: see guys paying like, you know, 8,500 hours for a Mora knife in Brazil because they, they, they see how popular they are in the wider you know, global bushcraft community, but down there it's a very you know 100 percent import tariff on imports like that, so they right. pay a premium for them.
0: Is there not a company making anything? That uh,
1: there's, it's just now uh, over the last few years, a few uh, individual makers are starting to catch on and uh, make
0: uh, bushcraft style knives. I know there's a big, I mean there's a big knife making population in Brazil.
1: They are. They have their they have their own traditional styles and things and. Uh, to get to to get a Brazilian knife maker to break out of their traditional styles and make like a, a guardless bushcraft knife is almost unheard of down there interesting. and we, we could not get uh knife makers to make a knife that did not have a a finger guard it was almost it's like pulling teeth and to a certain extent they probably wouldn't sell anyway in Brazil because they the the knife buyer he expects to see a finger guard he just which you know it's
0: interesting we i was on uh Mackinac Island yesterday, and there was a couple different shops on the island that sell knives. Um, I would not call them high-end knives, but they were not uh, they were not cheap Chinese knives. They were um, made in Michigan, and uh, every one of them had a guard on it that was three quarters of an inch or longer on it. Right, a a small knife with a guard on it that size, and I was like looking at them, going. Who the hell would design a knife that has a finger guard that's three quarters of an inch long on a blade that's a, you know, a, a three, three and a half inch, four inch blade right. knife? Little, like a little fin knife that had a giant guard on it. I was like, that just doesn't look right and I can't see that being useful. Well, my, my bushcraft knife is, is
1: a scalpel. That's what translates my thoughts into natural material. I normally would carry, you know, two two blades: one for breaking things, one for making things. Right. And the machete's the the blade in the jungle that you use to tear apart nature, and then I switched to the bushcraft knife to actually make, you know, I- items out of that those materials. Mm-hmm. Um, all the, you know, people go, you know, crazy about batoning and things like that. A machete batons very well. Mm-hmm. I've I've uh, batoned uh, even thick machetes through knotty wood, and you know, ha- I had one time it took about a, about twenty five thirty set in the. In, you know, the blade is, is bent in the middle, uh, sharp bend about t- 35 degrees, and you pound it all the way through, and it snaps back to true. You know, a machete will do that for you. And the thing is with a machete is uh, they're all low-end blades. The, you're not t- you're not spending you know, $100 up on a, on a blade that you're going to bang off a rock at some point. Right. You know, and when the machete wears out, you just get a new one and put it in the same sheath. You spend a lot more on the sheath. In fact, my my sheath guy down in Brazil he says, you know, these sheaths are expensive. You know, they're not. Not cheap, and, and that's the mentality. You buy a really good sheath. You figure out which blade you like, you buy a nice sheath, and then you replace it as necessary. It's like tires. Yeah, You, know, you buy
0: yeah. a nice set of rims and just put rubber on them when you need them. It's, inter- it's interesting how, from country to country, things change.
1: Yeah, people ask me, what's the best machete? It's, it totally depends on about where you are. You know, I would recommend, if you're going to a tropical country, to buy what the locals buy. Right. And what they what they buy to use, not what they buy to sell to tourists. You know, you just go to the local hardware shop and see what their most popular blades are. That'll be the blade that functions best in that place. Right. Well,
0: it's it is it is interesting. Like I said, you go all over the world, and there's you know different different techniques for for their survival in their er- their particular area, and it, it is usually not so much. Sur- it's just their way of life more right. than survival you know we look at it as There's living uh, you know there. yeah it's just living there you need these kinds of tools whether it's in the philippines or it's in you know the jungle in south america i mean it's that's the way they do it it's not anything special they right. that's their li- their livelihood so
1: and they use very simple simple gear you know you, you you meet a native in south america he's got a kitchen knife yeah he's got a little tra- tramonchina kitchen knife you know with a cork stuck on the on the point of it so it doesn't fall out of his pack you know that's that's the extent of it and and they work miracles with these little blades
0: you yeah know, and you know and some people think that that's it's so easy to live down there because food is relatively easily gotten it doesn't take a lot of horsepower in your head to figure out how to survive in oh, jungle's just, got lots of resources yeah yeah a lot more than you know enough to deal with the cold or you know those kinds of things you deal with other things yeah like the bugs and the bees, and
1: you know, people think that the, the jungle is dangerous because of snakes and jaguars and things like that. No, it's everything that kills you in the jungle weighs less than a gram. That just makes up for it in volume. <laughs> you know, you've got you know termites, billions of termites walking around in that jungle at night. You know, and all you know, running through you know the forest and these red streams and things. And yeah, you don't just walk around at night. No, they'll carry you away. Yeah, they yeah they'll they'll do a number on you. And that's the funny thing. Ants will walk around on you for a while. A termite, as soon as he realize he's on skin, he just bites. An ant will walk around. You could be covered with ants and, and nothing's biting you and you can slap them off. If you get covered with termites,
0: they're just latched on. Thank you? No. I'll take no. the cold weather. No, that's right. <laughs> I'll take the cold weather. The worst thing you gotta worry yeah, about is don't here. freeze off in the jungle. They rot off. Yeah, yeah. yeah I could, uh, I'd, rather, I'd much rather be in the snow. Well, the other thing too, during the zombie apocalypse, I can't understand why anybody would be in Georgia. Have you figured that out? Why the hell would you be? I don't know. I don't know. Just go north. They freeze, right? They got (laughs) to freeze. That's what I'm thinking. At least they get slow enough. Yeah, get slow enough, you just (laughs) knock them over
1: and wait for spring.
0: Yeah, that that always cracked me up. I was like, yeah, why is that always happening in the south? It never happened up here. Never. Too much snow. Too much snow.
1: It would would never. It would never work in Brazil either, because everyone lives in walled properties. Yeah, I was like, well, how would a zombie apocalypse? Everyone just kind of go home and wait it out, you know, and. That's they all funny. live in every everyone's house is already zombie-proof. Yes. You know, my house in Brazil, a twelve-foot wall, electric fence on top <laughs> of it, a Rottweiler and a pit bull patrolling the yard, bars on the windows. You it's know? gonna be,
0: it's gonna be like Detroit in the future. That's what, uh, that's what my prediction is. They're gonna have, uh, you know, people talking about what's gonna happen in Detroit. What's gonna happen in Detroit? It's all they're knocking everything down. And I was thinking, uh, a wise, a wise local government would start giving those blocks away. To people. Yeah. Here, here. You want to, here, here, you want to, you, you know, have seven blocks. Take, take a, something new. Yeah. Create something new. Create a walled complex. <laughs> you know, and you watch. I bet you that happens. You know, that's gonna, that's gonna be the way of the future down there. I think. You're gonna have big estates with a big wall around the outside of it. You know, and inside it's gonna be a beautiful, g- nice gardens and. You know, I was surprised at uh, some of the places I was in Afghanistan. Uh, you. You go, you walk down this alley, and it looked like a, it looked horrible, it looked terrible. The brick brick walls falling, caving in, and stuff. This big steel door would open up. You'd go inside, and it was like a beautiful garden inside. Right. And you know everything was really nice inside the wall, and you're like going, how could this possibly, how could this possibly be? How could this possibly be? And it's like, no, well, that's just the way they, they live there. They don't, and, and to be honest, um, there was a lot of places in Italy, Italy were like that. You know, when we were in Italy, Oh, it was, too. Yeah, yeah, it's it's incredible. You know, people have, they have their own little world inside the inside these walls, so. I lived that way for
1: 15 years. Yeah. You know, we had our, our little fortress we lived in and mayhem on the outside and home life going on on the inside.
0: Is it, is it really that much mayhem? quite a bit yeah bad place huh everybody's crooked
1: we lost uh the one apartment where we lived we lost five police officers in five years in the line of duty in our neighborhood that wasn't in the town that was you know Uh within blocks of of home we had five officers get killed and we had about one murder a week within bow shot of our home you know for several years and then we moved and built our our own place and had to put up with you know a different level of crime you know attempted home invasions and things like that and Lived under a death threat for two and a half years, and looking over my back and making sure I wasn't being followed home, and yeah, you don't realize what kind of stress that puts on you until you step out of it.
0: It's rough. It's rough. I mean, I'd hate to be a. It's almost be like, like being a Hillary aide. Everything you do. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. I'm not going to go there. No politics. Did you? Did you? Uh, oh, you gotta. You gotta <laughs> do Politics. Politics are a part of it. Um. I just saw that, uh, I just read an article this morning that supposedly uh, one of the things you read about the internet, you never know if it's all 100% true. And even Snopes is not. Uh, yeah, who who, who
1: who facts checks them?
0: Yeah, well, apparently um, there was a, an attorney for Bernie Sanders that is suing the DNC for Working against him oh. in the in the primaries. Apparently, he just came up dead like a couple days ago. Okay, he, and they don't know why. They don't know why. So it is what it is. Politics are it's a dirty game, crazy right? and the world dirty, over. and yep, the world over. yeah, that's true. That is true. Well, um, we've got about almost an hour of really good, interesting knife content. Awesome content, actually. Probably some of the best content that we've had in a long time without any arguments and without any politics and ranting or raving. I don't know, if our, civil. Yeah. I don't know if our audience is gonna be able to handle that <laughs> without, without too much ranting and raving, but we'll see if we can't get you riled up in the future. Oh, it's hard to get me riled up. I'm <laughs> pretty, pretty laid back person. <laughs> it's exciting, I'll tell you what, it's exciting. What's, your, what's in your future? You Talk about your
1: book. I am back to writing fiction. Uh, that was uh, something I started uh, before I, I went to uh, the show. I had uh, published self-published three uh, volumes in my se- fiction series, and then was uh, about 85% done volume four when I got the casting call to go on alone. And that threw a monkey wrench. Book three in my series ends with this big cliffhanger, and it was supposed to just launch book four immediately after that. So... Now, everyone's been left hanging at the end of book three for waiting for book four to come out. But now that I've got the, uh, I'm kind of like that, the, the Iowa farmer that won the lottery, you know, that uh, he, he said, well, no, you've won the lottery, what are you going to do? He says, well, now I can afford to keep farming, yeah.
0: you know. So I can, did you, did you,
1: did you see a bump in sales? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, the books are, it's not, you know, astronomical. I, I haven't done any advertising for my book series yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, being on the show definitely has uh, created a rise in sales.
0: We'll put, uh, um, put link a link on there. Okay. In, your, in, your, in the contents and stuff, so so people know where to find you. But it's a
1: post-apocalyptic series, basically a biological weapon, wipes out 90% of the Earth's population, and the other 10% that survives it wake up psychotic. And my main character wakes up in his right mind and has to figure all this out.
0: It's, it's interesting. So, I started reading it, and it's interesting. I downloaded all three, started reading it in my spare time, and... I kind of kind of wrote
1: it in response to a lot of things that bother. I love fiction. I love reading, and I, I you know, I love zombie stories, but I hate zombies because I can't wrap my head around how they work. Well, and you always have to suspend disbelief. You know, the, suspend the science of it. You know, it, you and that's that's we've
0: had these zombie conversations before. It's it's almost like okay, you've got somebody that's dead, and they're rotting in front of you. Their muscles are rotting off of them and yet oh, they still yet they can still bite. How do yes. you know
1: their jaws have yeah. hanging off? How do they bite? To me a staggering corpse with rotting teeth is not that terrifying. No. Now an, an enraged woman with a crowbar? Yeah, that's scary. You know, as someone who will run at you and throw things at you and things like that. So so the the psychotic the 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 zombie stand-ins in my in my story right. are that way. They're human beings, they're not dead. They're just out of their minds. Yeah, it's that's more always like, more that's, like the rage virus
0: of you know 28 days. And yeah, that. that was that was always my problem with with any of the zombie stories. Was okay, I get it, I understand what you're trying to get at, but but let's let's get real. I don't care how many times you shoot it in the face or shoot it in the head or whatever you're doing. What's what's keeping them moving? Their muscles are right. rotting. Bones um, have to be intact for things to walk. You know what I mean? Exactly. What would stop somebody
1: a horde of, of zombies coming down the street and someone opens up with a two forty and cuts them all off at of the knees? Yeah. You know, you're done. Yeah. You know? Uh, snowplow. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Why how does that work? So I kinda wrote the story in response to that. And the other thing that I do with my story is that I try and keep it as close to the line of reality as possible. And if any solution is open to these characters of looting things out of homes or in business or whatever, they take the, the path of least resistance. So uh, my stories are very strong in the character development. That I, have very, I know my characters very well. And I can throw them into a situation, and because I know them so well, they write the story for me. They, they come up with the dialogue and the, the solutions and their reactions, it's, it's very enjoyable. Well,
0: I can tell you, it's very well written, it's very entertaining, and uh, uh, reminded me a lot of stuff that I would do. The other thing that that bugs me is it's been done to death, where the
1: world falls apart, everyone turns into savages, and that's how they end up surviving. And I know from leading groups of wilderness survival training in, in jungle that if if that situation isn't bringing the very best out of you, then your group's going to fall apart. Right. If every, every man for himself does not work, and I wanted to write that uh, group dynamic into a group of people that were surviving the apocalypse, and it, it, the situation brings the best out of them rather than the worst. Now, the, the brutality and the savagery and all that stuff—you know—there there is a place where you know violence doesn't solve everything, but it does solve fights. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's plenty of that. In the books. It does
0: solve disagreements. Yes, it does solve disagreements.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, it does. It, you know, it is a. It, they are forced into that situation yep. time and again, where they have to defend themselves and things. But uh, if difficult situations in
0: our lives don't bring the best out of us, we don't come out on, on top. Well, it's, it's interesting to see that, that uh, this Walking Dead series has become so popular. Um, it's almost like the fans are starting to dictate what kind of responses they want them to have. And I think this series is going to throw them for a loop this this season. I don't know if you follow any of. I those. have
1: I have not seen season season. Uh, I think it was season six was airing when I was out on the island. Yeah. And I'm waiting for it to come out on Netflix. It was pretty soon, I think. Yeah. It's going to come out yeah. on Netflix. Yeah, so the, I'll, the, I'll binge watch that when it comes
0: out. The next the next season is going to is going to change everything. But like I said, once again, I have a I do. I mean, I think your solution to the zombie thing is way more, way better than than what they've done with the dead. Uh, with the dead people, I'm I want people
1: that are reading the story to say, "Yeah, this could actually happen this way." Yeah,
0: and it, it, and keep it as close to the line
1: of uh, of believability as well, possible. Well, yeah,
0: because it, like I said, the, we, you talk about uh, you know turning into a zombie, and and I, I think it's kind of a ridiculous notion, and and the whole the physics of it just doesn't work. You know, I, I mean, it's just an impossibility. Um, I think some of the reactions that they portray in the show, re- pretty realistic. I think that. Um, I think that you end up with bands of people that do group together. Sure, and they they work off of people's strengths and weaknesses. You know, and but you know the part of part of the thing that uh, that gets
1: me is is whenever people are thrown in these these horrible situations, be it natural disaster or whatever. Most of the people want to get back to some semblance of a normal right, life, and right. that's a, a major pull that people want. They right. want family, they well, want relationships, and, and they want all these things. They and want today, to get back
0: to it. and today is uh, is uh, what the 15th anniversary of September of nine eleven of the of the terrorist attack that we have here. And I was watching a show yesterday, and Rudy Giuliani was on there, and he was talking about uh, things getting back to normal as quickly as possible, and uh, they. Interviewed Matthew Broderick, which was uh, he was at the time was running uh, a, a show on Broadway, and he actually got a call. He, and he I didn't know this. I mean, there, a lot of this stuff is starting to come out now that we didn't know that happened during the time. And uh, he said, he says, you know, he says, w- we got a call from the mayor's office saying that they wanted us to put the show back on as soon as we could. And it was like five days after the event, or three days after the event, or something like that. And the whole the whole just was to get people back towards some semblance of normalcy in their right. lives because that's what, that's their comfort zone. And right now we're, moment. we're all right. out of their comfort zone. And, and, uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty true to life. Great leaders understand that. Mm-hmm. They, they know that you have to get back to something. You have to build some kind of civilization back up because otherwise we got nothing, none right. of us will survive. And I think that that was, uh, um, that was a very telling thing that, that uh, Rudy Giuliani he understood that you know and he you know basically made those phone calls that hey we need to start playing games again we need to start doing these things right. again. We need to start picking up garbage on Wednesdays right and, you know all of these things that that built our civilization we can't just stop that stuff. Um, and I think it's the same thing with any kind of a um, upheaval in your life. Um, the people that survive it push on and right. the people that don't survive it are the ones that can't get over the event. They can't get past it. And I think that's about every survival situation is like that. Whatever puts you in that situation, you need to be able to get past that and right. move to the Deal next level. Deal with it and establish some kind of normal life. Yeah, exactly. I think that, I've written
1: a lot of that into the story where the the characters have that pull. You know, they they want to have, form lasting relationships and things. I just think it's been done to death, you know, the uh, The guy who the very unidirectional character where uh, he's just really good at killing or you know war or whatever you know and that's like the whole thing and that might work for an adventure
0: novel intended for but but you don't think about it even if you go back to like the original Rambo movie what was he what was he looking for when he was traveling he was looking for a normal life right trying to get his normal life back right and everything that always happened along the way was what threw him into. Right, the abnormal Triggered, savagery. Triggered all that. Exactly, and and uh, so I think that's a lot of people do understand that. I think a lot of good writers understood that, but they, but I don't think a lot of good readers understand it.
1: Yeah, you know, people, people <laughs> read for for fans. I think I think for for my story, one of the things I like to I, I do in, in this story is that everyone ha- everyone in the story is stripped down to their core values. Okay, right now, if you if you look at the traditional, and I'm talking traditional. Values of the right and the left. You know the the, the left uh, is the, you know corporate. We can we're stronger together than we are as individuals and things like that. Uh, the the uh, the idea of compassion and things. And Holly represents that. Okay, she's like your your East Coast. She comes from an, like an East Coast liberal background. Mm-hmm. And Nick is your hardcore conservative, rugged individual, former military guy. And uh, the two of them together, uh, without the Republican and Democratic parties, they're all dead. Okay, the entire political system right. is dead. And I, you, know, you know, amen to that, right? But they're stripped down of their core values and those core values are legitimate and they, they get to express that. So you have this, this interplay between the two of them which actually brings them to solutions which are really workable.
0: Well, and it is interesting because when you think about, when you think about everybody's core values, whether it's your religious values or, um, we all want the same things. I mean, doesn't matter if you're a liberal or a. If you think about what they're supposed to, what they're supposed to stand for, what the conservatives are supposed to stand for, supposedly we all want the same things. Doesn't necessarily mean that they do. Totally different approaches to getting there. But. Exactly. Well, and I, to be honest, I think it's, I think it's, a, it ends up being a, a lot of times a bait and switch. Right. We 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 want you to, we want to help you. We want to do this, but. The reality of it is, we want to make you dependent. We want to make sure that we get reelected. Mm-hmm. I think that's where the I think that's where the, the the car comes off the rail. Prior to us becoming so divided into the the um, the right and the left, I think that government was small. It could not do as much as what it tries to do now. What stood in, in its place, the church stood in its place. The church was the ones that helped. The neighbors were the ones that helped, when because they knew when somebody really needed help. Right. You know, the drunk lying in the gutter, probably not so much.
1: But that you was know? also a time when people knew their neighbors and knew, they had a sense of community exactly. and like that. Exactly, and that's I think what, that's, that's where what I like about, about the, writing this story where I get such a kick out of it is that when everything's dead, every, you know, the entire government's gone. You know, is this United, the United States anymore? Right. What are our values? What do we Right. Care about, you know? right. and they're there to establish the, you know, this little it's society. It's not even the new
0: world order or nothing. There's nothing left. There's nothing
1: left. You no, know, there's no, there's no government institutions. There's nothing left. And uh, Nick and Holly and the people that are surrounding them are now working through these issues on their own. How do we want to live?
0: Like how new, should we? Then like live? the new
1: pioneers. Exactly. They've got this uh, wilderness, which was the former U.S. to to play in and to figure it out. And all those resources are there. You know how do you establish a system of economics when everyone steals everything? You know when yep. it was you live by looting, and, and how do you play through these different uh, different things? And they're figuring out as they go along.
0: Yeah, very well written, very very well done. I, I really am enjoying it. Go get it. Okay, um, I don't know. I think we're uh, we should just wrap it down a little bit, and uh, we're not going to rant on politics. We're not going to rant on. Uh, you got to tell me one thing that's bugging you right now. One thing, and then we'll. We'll call it quits. One thing
1: that's bugging me, Yeah. Uh, the election. Oh, You went there. Yeah, I went there, <laughs> I went there. Went yeah. right for the it's throat. It's just, uh, <laughs> I don't know, it's, it's just surreal uh, to me. Uh, I'm not gonna tell you how, how I'm gonna vote. Oh, come you on. You can all imagine, <laughs> I'm sure you can imagine. I just. Uh,
0: well, I let's just... see, let me think now. Um, you're not brain dead, <laughs> so that rules out Hillary. And um, you're not a pot smoker, no. so that rules out Gary Johnson. <laughs> I know, I just... Uh, I'm not gonna even, My, right, my politics
1: good. tend to unite the right and right the left very quickly and with a desire to hang me. So yeah, yeah I'm not and,
0: gonna... And, and, and I think that that's where we're at. I think we're... It's just so polarized
1: and nobody's listening to anybody. Right. Um, nobody's really paying attention. Nobody's taking, it, taking
0: things seriously. Well, I think, uh, I think part of the problem is it's so corrupt. The system is so corrupt that there isn't, and there's not, there's not a real solution. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I've prayed for a bloodless revolution for a long time. I'm hoping that in November we have a bloodless revolution. Otherwise. That's a much better way to do it. Yeah. Otherwise, it's going to be ugly. I, I hope. It, I hope it never comes to yeah, that. Yeah, I don't. I hope it doesn't either. And the only way that it, that. Um, as it stands now, the only way that, we, that, we, that we're gonna survive as a nation, I think, is we have to clean house and we have to fall back to our core values. And I think that that's where, um, I mean, I think that that's, there, there's only one solution that's gonna, even with the remote possibility that that's gonna happen. 61 you know, half a dozen the other you
1: can't change the world no you can change the world you touch yeah and i think that's where, where people have to step up in their individual game and and be you know step up into the role that that you're that you can have a huge influence on the people around you the pe- the lives that you touch and what you do matters you know even if it only matters to the 10 people that you are around every day mm-hmm. you can be there for them and, and step up and that's i uh,
0: i think as a nation we need to do that yep and it, and we have to stop we have to stop looking to our government for solutions. I think that's a that's a big uh, that's a big message for the millennials that seem to think that they're the that's the only solution. Right is is more government, and I'm not down on millennials at all. Um, three of my favorite people in the world are millennials. <laughs> have to be the parent of a few of them. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like uh, you want them to realize that. Uh, that the government is not the answer. Right. You're, you're, you're responsible. A little less that
1: somebody should do something about
0: this and then you know, as opposed to we need to do
1: something about exactly. this. You know, exactly, let's just get do it, it done. Yeah, yep. step let's up just, and
0: get the work done. And that's where, uh, and it's not like they don't have the abilities because they do have the no, they're abilities. they're very talented. They're very talented. Um, maybe a little bit too many selfies. I, maybe they yeah. take too many selfies. Maybe they, you know, I don't know. I, I have a new granddaughter. I really love the fact that, that my my daughter-in-law's posting a lot of pictures of her on on, on uh, yeah, my newsfeed. So, I don't know, maybe it's selfish, but but I think that uh, a little more, more, maybe a little more pictures of their babies and a little less pictures of their food would be good.
1: I never got the, the food pictures, <laughs> uh, honestly. <laughs> You know, th- there's, that goes way back, though. My, my grandfather uh, kept a diary, and you look at his diary, and it's like, you know, took the A train to Hartford, ate a, ate a tuna sandwich, you know, and every every day he tells you where he went and what he ate. It throughout, you know, my, my, mom, my mother was like, oh, you should read your,
0: your grandfather's diary, and I read through it. It's a menu. Okay, it
1: looks
0: like we have company. So let's sign off for right now, and uh, we, we'll have to catch up at a later date. Um. You can find us at. Hang hang on a second. I'm going to pause this. I'm not going to get this done. Okay, we're back after that little interruption, the neighbor selling cheesecake. Um, okay, so so we're going to call this quits for this time around, and uh, uh, we'll continue some of these thoughts at a later date, too. But um, this has the, been the Knife Journal Podcast. I really enjoyed having you here, and I'm hoping that we do this more often. This would be great, yeah. Um, I enjoyed it we can talk about a lot of other stuff and as we get down the road, I and mean, things might get, could be ugly, could get, you know, we could get into no, let's some look, serious let's pray discussions. That it does not go there. We we can have some pretty serious discussions about a lot of different stuff, but maybe if we get into arguing about cars or. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna argue with a man in his own home, no. Oh, you're you're welcome here, it doesn't matter. Okay, um, so tell me about where your website is you have a website for your book?
1: I, I, it's on Kindle. You can find it on Amazon Kindle.
0: Okay. Dave McIntyre of The Fall. The series is called The Fall. Uh, there's three volumes. Okay. And I will put links in the in the uh, notes. And, um, but you don't have a website for that? Not yet, no. Oh, you should Working on it. Working on it. Well, you know we can put something on our server. So, um, With that being said, this has been the 100th episode of the Knife Journal podcast. We are at 100 right now. Um, And so we have a wide open future. Um, Remember, like us on Facebook. Friend us on Facebook. You can friend me uh, at uh, James Noka. If you're not a Russian hooker, I'll probably say yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You got to be careful though now friending people on Facebook. Because some people, even though they, you might think that you know who they are, but not really who they are. They're some fake thing and they just want to get your it's information. A out there. Yep, it's a jungle out there. So remember, keep your knives sharp and your friends sharper. Until next time, bye-bye.